With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Previously in the Colonial Parkway Murders series. David Nobling's uh, pickup truck is found at a parking area at the Wildlife Refuge. The bodies are found three days later. 30 years ago today, the second in that series of events shook Isle of Wight County. The deaths of David Nobling and Robin Edwards. Many of your signs, Andy Fox was there and looks back at the case and the plea from the victims' families for some kind of answer. Andy. David Nobling and Robin Edwards. What we've learned for the families left behind, you never get over it. And... 20-year-old David was with a new friend, 14-year-old Robin Edwards. Back in 1986, for two months, Wells and his agents worked out of a motel room near the Colonial Parkway. It's a very fascinating case, and it's one that you really have to sit and think about, and you could find yourself lost in thought for hours and days and weeks regarding this case. One big question is, are all four of these double homicides, are they in fact connected? Rebecca Andowski and Kathleen Thomas, two haunting names never forgotten by people in Hampton Roads. They're the first two victims of the Colonial Parkway murders. In all three of those cases, whoever did this, crafty person that he was, was trying to stage those vehicles so that somebody else would steal them and throw off the investigation. Could new DNA testing identify who killed eight people in the infamous Colonial Parkway murders? Family members tell us that's what they are hoping. The problem is after more than a year of pleading for new tests, they say all they've seen are delays. One of the frustrations has been the pace of the testing done at Quantico. Hello and welcome to the fifth and final episode of the Colonial Parkway Murders. I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and on this week's episode, I am joined by Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast, as well as Bill Thomas, the brother of Kathy Thomas, who was one of the first victims in the Colonial Parkway Murders. And on this week's episode, we will take a deeper look into what genetic genealogy can do for the case and what the FBI can do to solve this 33-year-old mystery. So please join me and Nick and Bill for this final conversation on the Colonial Parkway serial killings. So anyway, we should probably get back into it. All right, go ahead. Nick, you look like you have a question. Looking at all four of these cases, Bill, I almost feel, and you know these four cases better than 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 most, um, I would argue better than anyone, but um, I kind of feel like your sister's case, the first out of the four, has the best chance of getting some movement still to this day, getting some um, progress or even being solved. How do you feel between the four? And and one thing I want to point out before you, you give your answer is, 
what I said on, on True Crime Garage when we covered the case is I prefer that the agencies believe that they're not connected. I think that the best chance of getting any one of these cases solved is if they, if they were looked at as a standalone case on their own. Um, but having said that, I, I kind of feel like there is evidence in your, your sister's case that may not be there in the other three cases that could help, uh, could get some kind of justice even all these years later. Well, the investigators have told me that they believe that of the four double homicides in the Colonial Parkway murders, that my sister Kathy and Rebecca Dowski's crime scene is the most evidence rich. That's the expression they use that, 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 that contains the most evidence, you know, obviously in situation in some of the other situations and look, you know, my heart is always with not just my family, but all eight families. So I'm not trying to diminish anything that's going on with any of the four double homicides in the colonial parkway murders, but there does appear to be more evidence. Obviously, you know, in the other examples, uh, in, in case number two with Robin Edwards and David Nobling, they spent three days in the water. That's, that presents significant challenges, I'm told, from a forensic perspective. Although there is, there is evidence there and that I believe needs to be tested and retested. Um, in, in the third example, the one we've talked about quite a bit uh, today, uh, Keith Call and Cassandra Haley, we don't have any bodies. So there, we have a car. And we have evidence inside that car, but we don't have Keith and Sandy's remains to, to work from in terms of how they died and where they died and so on. And then in, in case number four, Anna Maria Phelps and, and Daniel Lauer, their bodies were missing for six weeks. And as we talked about, they were in very rough shape um, and you know, found in an advanced state of decomposition six weeks after the fact. And so that presents... Uh, a, a unique set of challenges in terms of the crime scenes. When you steer back to Kathy and Becky's uh, murder scene, the 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 bodies and the car at least are all together in one place. The FBI believes that the murder likely took place elsewhere, outside the car, and not at the um, pull off. Um, where the car was found, but likely at, at another location, perhaps on the Colonial Parkway. But at least you've got a car and a bodies together. And so that presents some advantages from an evidence perspective. In regards to your sister's case, we talked, I think, in, you know, last week about how rough it was for her going through the Naval Academy and the abuse that she had taken on and any possibilities that there might be some connection there. Have the authorities given you any idea as far as what they've investigated as far as people in the Navy goes? Well, they speak in generalities, but certainly they did take a look at, and this all makes sense. And remember, Kathy and Becky's murder happens first. So the other so-called colonial parkway murders haven't occurred yet. It's not until a year later when Robin Edwards and David Nobling are murdered. Um, you know, what they told us in speaking, you know, without a lot of specificity, they certainly looked at, you know, a lot of the people in Kathy's life and in Becky's life. So they looked at 
classmates from the Naval Academy in, in Kathy's example, men that she dated, although she'd never shown a tremendous amount of interest in dating. Um, it, it, you know, they took a look at, at Kathy's first girlfriend, whom she met in the Navy, um, who interestingly introduced her to Rebecca Dowski. So Becky was Kathy's second relationship with a woman. So obviously, and, and Kathy's first girlfriend and another friend were together with Rebecca Dowski and Kathy Thomas at William and Mary working on a, a, an assignment for a class. So they took a look at Kathy's first girlfriend and other uh, women and men that she had associated with. They obviously took a look at Becky's uh, previous boyfriends and Kathy Thomas would have been Rebecca Dowski's first lesbian relationship that we know of. Um, so, you know, you, you go back and take a look at, you know, uh, classmates. And uh, I know that the guy that Becky was, was dating was on the short list of potential suspects um, a, 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 as well. So they, they do speak in generalities about the kind of people that they're looking at. But of course, now that, um, I've been very heavily involved in the case for the last 10 years since the story broke about the FBI losing control of the crime scene photos. And, you know, even in, even in the inquiries that I've made, certain people's names come up over and over again. And these are the kind of people that I think that the FBI investigators have looked at. In your opinion, do you think Kathy had the most overkill? I mean, at least the most vicious of attacks. And I guess I can go to both questions. I mean, they first should go to Bill and then Nick, what's your thoughts on that after that? Well, uh, you know, from my point of, point of view, Bill's point of view, uh, you know, look, it, it does appear that although the level of violence directed at both women was extremely high, it does appear that Kathy was treated more brutally. That could have been something as simple as, she was older. She was the one with the martial arts training. She was the one that didn't suffer fools gladly. And so she may have engaged, you know, verbally and then physically with the perpetrator. Um, so that's why she got the worst of it. But there's no question in my mind, based on the autopsy reports and what the investigators have told me, that Kathy um, was treated more brutally than, than Becky was. Yeah, I agree with what, what Bill just said, and, and I think I share his suspicions as well that it, it very likely could just be that Kathy defended herself or defended Becky and that that there was some type of physical altercation that, that took place, and that is why uh, the brutality is more so there. Also, again, it also goes back to if all four of these are connected, it goes back to where the perpetrator is uh, and, and what he chose to bring with him in these situations and what he has learned or, or doesn't understand yet along the way. Uh, it, the first case seems to be the most intimate uh, as far as one-on-one um, -on -one contact, let's say, to me. Uh, but I also feel like that there might, there could be some kind of psychological aspect to that as well. Uh, maybe not just the self-defense, maybe not just what the killer brought to, to the scene, but 
out of all the cases that, that we're talking about, the, out of, and include the, the later one, the Shenandoah case, I almost feel like out of all five of these cases, the first case is the one where I feel most likely there could be some potential connection to a victim or to the area itself. And we, we talk about what are the suspected movements of Kathy and Becky that evening. We know that they were on campus for a, a period of time. They may have stopped off at a restaurant or a pub of some sort and then continued along their way. I've always had this, this creepy suspicion in that case where it's not just that the, the killer may have come across their vehicle on, you know, traveling on the highway or on the road, like I feel is the case in the other situations. I almost wonder if, is there a chance that this killer followed them from the campus or saw them at the establishment? There seems to be something different about the first case to me that, that doesn't seem to be there in the other three. Well, well I'll point out uh, one significant difference that law enforcement investigators have pointed out to me, which is the killer or killers went to much greater lengths to disguise uh, and dispose of, of the car in, in Kathy and Becky's case. The, in the other examples, the car is left right out there in the open. But, you know, just to recap, after the, after the strangulation with rope and the, and the cutting of the throats with, with the knives, he loads Kathy and Becky's bodies into the car. Kathy, by the way, is in the way back in the trunk, kind of folded up. She's not a small person. She's like 5'7", very athletic, 145 pounds. Um, he kind of folds her body up in a seated position and puts it in the way back of this 1980 Honda Civic puts Rebecca Dowski's body in the back seat, and we believe drove the vehicle to the um, uh, pull-off where the, where the car was found. Um, and it's called the Cheatham Annex Overlook. It overlooks this area where Navy ships are loaded with explosives about a mile away in the distance. You can see the ships quite clearly. And then uh, – it makes an attempt to set the car on fire. None of this is, is evident in any of the other cases. There's no accelerants used. It's diesel fuel, which is an odd choice, and it's unsuccessful. Matches are found, and there's a, an attempt to set the car on fire. And then finally, failing to set the car on fire, he or they push the car over the embankment, and it rolls down into the underbrush by the York River. But if you think about it, none of these things are happening in the, in the other examples in the Colonial Parkway murders. Cars are moved, and I think cars are moved post-mortem. And, it, it, you know, in the individual scenario, one perpetrator, that means that he is driving cars and then, I guess, walking back to wherever his vehicle is located. Or, as Nick mentioned, if you have two perpetrators, obviously moving cars around is a lot simpler if he has an accomplice. Um, so, you know, you can move the victim's car, park it, and then enter the other vehicle and the two uh, perpetrators drive away. But very striking to me, and it always has been, what effort the killer went to in Kathy and Becky's example and uh, you don't see anywhere near that level of um, attempt to uh, dispose of the vehicle um, in the other three cases. 
And we often talk about how the level of concealment of a body can sometimes indicate the closeness to the the victim or the the closeness and con- connection to the victim. And that's again where I, another reason why I go back to this first case is there there's something more about this one than just than just pulling over random strangers. Uh, and, and a lot of these other cases, basically teenagers. Right. Um, right. Uh, let me give you a striking example. We just talked about how, in my opinion, Kathy and Becky's bodies are actually treated with a great deal of disrespect. And yet in the fourth example, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, they're murdered, but which is a terrible thing. But then they're laid out side by side under an, uh, an electric blanket that was taken from Daniel's Chevrolet Nova. And the bodies are placed on the forest floor, laid out side by side under a blanket. Now you could make a case that this is to disguise them or, or what, what have you, it's under this brown plaid blanket. Sadly, animals appear to disturb the bodies over, over the coming six weeks and decomposition starts to take its toll on the bodies. But very striking, the difference between the way Kathy and, and Becky's bodies are treated, and even some of even in the um, Edwards Noblin case at Ragged Island, where they're shot and they're thrown in the water, um, versus case number four, the way they're at least initially carefully laid out um, along a logging road um, uh, under a blanket. Um, if they hadn't been disturbed by by animals, um, I think they probably would have you know, been found more or less in, 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 in the same position they were, they were laid out in. And there's something about the blanket and the side-by-side aspect of it that's very striking to me. Yeah, definitely. It seems like they're put on display, sort of like, um, you know, trophies, to put it in a really dark manner. But it's, it sounds very much like hunting. Well, and it's interesting that, that the ground where they're found on is a hunting preserve that's owned by a hunt club. It's a former area that was logged many years before. And there are these logging roads, which are very big and wide designed for trucks to go up and down. And then the land is purchased later and is used by a group of hunters and actually Turkey hunters who are out, you know, on that kind of preserve land, um, you know, walking around looking for turkeys, I guess, um, which is a fall thing. They are the people that find the bodies. And it's funny, I've walked that property. Um, Virginia State Police, you didn't hear me mention that. Um, it is private property, folks. Um, but I've walked that that preserve. And there, I didn't see any structures at all except for a few uh, blinds. In other words, you know, little like platforms that hunters would build up on a tree um, out of... Out of uh, uh, plywood and, and two by fours, you know, to give them a platform to kind of look up above to see deer or, or turkeys or whatever they would be hunting on that beautiful stretch of land. But there's not a lot of structures there, but very striking. Like you say, there's a, um, the way the bodies are treated in, in, in Phelps Lauer, case number four, is very different. And they found a locket that belonged to Anna Maria. I, I, I want to say it was on the, on the, on the road, uh, the uh, logging road uh, near where the bodies were found, but a bit away from 
from the body. So perhaps there was a struggle and the, the ne necklace was pulled from her, her neck or perhaps it was dropped there, but it feels very different. And it's funny, one thing that's worth mentioning, there are individual suspects that we're aware of who may have links to one of these cases where we can't necessarily see them being linked to all four. So I'm not 100% certain you can just take four double homicides and dump them in together, call them the Colonial Parkway murders and insist that they're all related because it is possible that, as I like to say, one of them, one or more of them could fall off the table. I think some of them are definitely related, but it is possible that some of them may be freestanding events. I think at minimum two of them are, are connected. Um, <laughs> the question is which, which two? <laughs> which I guess, that's, I guess that's the smallest amount you could put out there, right? 50-50. Um, <laughs> right. But, okay. Um, so which so two? I think the first and the third feel more connected to me than than any but I, I i would say if it were more than two i would say one through three more likely connected than one through four and i only say that because with the, the with the fourth case i know that there are some extra suspicions in there one being that there there is some thought that maybe um one of the victims was meeting somebody that night, uh, a blue van or something of that nature. And then there's also a, an added component of a drug layer to it, as well as possible robbery. There's some suspicion that the male victim may have had a considerable amount of cash on him correct. that night. Is that correct? Correct. And that, that cash has never surfaced. And so we can't prove that it was stolen. And we can't prove that that's the motive, even if it was. But um, there, there are some added layers to the fourth case that I don't see as much in the others, especially in the first one. Right. Yeah, I, I'll, I would agree with, with all of your points, Nick. The Daniel Lauer had agreed to move down to Virginia Beach with his brother, Clint, who was actually the guy who was dating, and some people say planned to marry, Anna Maria Feltz. So it's funny, we say couples uh, kind of loosely here. The truth is, uh, Anna Maria is his brother Clint's girlfriend, not Daniel's girlfriend. But as part of moving down to Virginia Beach from Amelia County, Virginia, where they lived, uh, Daniel had uh, collected some money from his father. They had done a bunch of painting jobs that summer, house painting. And he had somewhere between six and eight hundred dollars, which is a lot of money and was even more money back then. He had six to eight hundred dollars on him. And some people were aware of that. Um, and so he's heading down to move in with his brother and his brother's girlfriend to kind of help pay the rent on this place they were renting down in Virginia Beach. Clint had to work that weekend at his part time job. So he didn't make the trip back from Virginia Beach to Amelia County, and then they're returning at the end of the Labor Day weekend. But he's supposed to have a big chunk of money in his, in his wallet, and the money's never found. So there's a robbery component here that is missing in all of the other cases. And so it's possible that robbery could be, um, could be a motive, and um, it you know, the bottom line is the car is found, his his uh, articles of clothing, and, you know, he's got a lot of stuff that he's sort of bringing with him to help 
him move in and share the rent with his brother and his girlfriend. Um, but the wallet goes missing and the money is never found. And interestingly, in all of the other examples, um, money and wallets are, are, are found intact. In um, you know, and as you mentioned, in several of these examples in the Colonial Parkway murders, driver's licenses and, and, and wallets are, are left open almost as if they've been approached by uh, the authority figure that we've talked about, law enforcement person or someone posing as one. And that, that, that's all absent in, in, in Phelps Lauer, um, case number four. It, it, in some ways, it feels very different. Let me ask you, Bill Thomas, uh, when you spoke with the FBI and you said that they've, you know, taken you to the crime scenes, walked you through crime scenes, was it their opinion that in all four cases the vehicle was moved? Mm, I don't want to speak for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, but <laughs> I think my recollection is yes, they, they feel that they're, that's one of the signatures. That's actually a word they use quite a bit. That in, in every example, remember, they're the lead agency for case number one, Thomas Dowski, and case number three, uh, Keith Call, Cassandra Haley, uh, and then two separate Virginia State Police offices are, are responsible for, the, for case number two, Edwards Knobling, and case number four, uh, Phelps Lauer. Um, but they have worked cooperatively over the years. I think based on my numerous conversations with the investigators, both FBI and Virginia State Police, I think there's a pretty consistent through pattern expressed by them that vehicles were moved. And they've used, the in recent years, they've used the word staged, um, I think, in, in all four examples. And the interesting thing here as well is we, we if, if in all four cases vehicles were moved, when we talk about do we have an individual committing these crimes or a, a two-man team, at no point, and as Bill just pointed out earlier, if, you, if I were to move a vehicle post-mortem and, and to get back to wherever I was from or to get back to my own vehicle, I now have to, to do that on foot. And at no point in any of these cases do we, as far as we know, do we have a, an eyewitness saying, you know, what? I was driving at two or three in the morning and I saw some white dude walking on, you know, walking on, on the side of the road. And that to me, again, I, I keep going back to this team thing. I don't know that the team is necessary in all four of the cases, but it, with the moving of the vehicles, that certainly makes that 100% easier. And then in the first case, with Kathy and Becky, we also, I wonder about, we know cigarette butts were found at the scene where the bodies were found, where the vehicle was found. And I know, unfortunately, we live in a world where people like to throw things out the side of their cars, or, you know, out their car window while they're driving. But you wonder, uh, I want, my, my immediate thought and suspicion is, did they find more than one brand of cigarettes? Um, at, regarding these cigarette butts, because anybody that's ever been a smoker knows you are pretty loyal to your brand, to your your type of cigarettes that you smoke. And I would feel like if we found two brands out there, that that would even point more so to looking to two individuals. Sure. Let's talk about moving of cars for a second, though. One of the striking things in case number four, Phelps Lauer, is that 
is that Anna Maria and Daniel were headed from Amelia County, which is up towards Richmond, to Virginia Beach. So they're headed eastbound on I-64, which is a, is a two-lane, uh, a four-lane, two lanes in each direction, a major highway. I'm putting air quotes around that. You know, it's a busy highway, um, but you're on a kind of a rural stretch of it. The, the place that they think it's likely that they stopped um, would have been at the eastbound rest stop that is in the direction of travel from Amelia County to Virginia Beach. In interesting, so that's the direction of travel. Interestingly, the car is found on the westbound rest stop. There's two rest stops, one on either side of the divided highway with a grassy median with some trees in between. And just bear with me for a second. So let's just say they stopped or were stopped, maybe to make a pit stop or whatever. That's where the bathrooms are. This is a, a rest stop that a lot of people would know. It's the Virginia, Virginia Welcome Center. It's got a big, L, one of those big L-O-V-E um, uh, uh, statues that people take pictures of and you know this is all back from virginia's for lovers and all that kind of stuff um so a lot of people know that rest stop and that's eastbound on your way to the beach the car is found on the opposite side of the road but the bodies are found uh, um, about a mile away as the crow flies at the next eastbound exit so law enforcement experts have walked me through this scenario let's just say they stop at the eastbound rest stop to make a pit stop or whatever. They encounter whoever they encounter. Let's just say it's somebody who presents as law enforcement or they're somehow forced or to get in a car. They are taken <clears throat> to, the, um, uh, to the next eastbound rest uh, exit. The, they exit the highway, they cross under the highway, I wanna say. Um, I-64, and they their bodies are dumped on this uh, logging road that's off the uh, the little rural highway that they pulled onto. Then the the car then is driven back in the opposite direction of travel. The murders have now taken place. Uh, Anna Maria and Daniel have been left in the woods under the blanket. The perpetrator drives the car back to the westbound rest stop and parks, in this case, I guess we, we're using the Chevrolet Nova, their car, parks their car in the westbound rest stop as far away from the buildings as possible. The car is actually found in the acceleration lane that's for the trucks, not cars. You know how sometimes they have two lanes, one for cars, mm -hmm. one for trucks. It's as physically far away from the buildings as possible. This is in an environment where there are far fewer um, video cameras around. Like, you know, today is very, very different. And then he or they run across the road, across the lightly wooded median, and go back over to the eastbound side where they've left their other vehicle. One person can easily perform all of these functions. So for example, that, that, that weird disconnect with the, why is the car headed in the opposite direction of travel? There's a pretty simple 
scenario. By the way, I didn't dream this up. One of the FBI investigators walking me through one of the crime scenes explained how she thought this had, you know, could have happened with with one person. Some of the situations it gets a little more complicated, but there's one where one one person, one car, one perpetrator could easily, if they could control these people, their victims, um, prior to killing them, there's a scenario that allows them to move the cars and also explains the odd detail about why is the car parked in the wrong direction when it's found abandoned. In, in the first case and the third case, though, the movement of the vehicle gets quite a bit more complicated or would be suspected to be so. It, it does. I, I personally think that, that Kathy and Becky were murdered at another picnic area, which is much more secluded, um, also along the Colonial Parkway. But that would entail, if it's one person, near as I can figure, um, the person driving Kathy's car a little less than a mile and abandoning it at the overlook um, and then walking back as near, you know, if it's one person walking back a little less than a mile to where he would have left his car. This is assuming it's one person. Obviously, if it's two people, and by the way, some of these murders could be two and some could be one, even if it's the same killer, he might have an accomplice. Right. He might not, but not always. Um, in, in Obviously, it's simpler if he's got a, a, a second person operating the their original vehicle and then the perpetrator or perpetrators climbing the car. But even in the one person scenario, again, the same investigator walking me through the crime scenes did explain how she thought that it might be possible to um, encounter the couple, um, kill them, move the car. And in, in, in this particular example, in the first example with Kathy and Becky's crime scene, walk back a bit more of a distance. And by the way, speaking of, you know, modifying your techniques um, and changing things up, maybe uh, he decides that that's more trouble than it's worth um, and wants to, you know, work it out so that he doesn't have to move cars um, and, and walk back such great distances. And, you know, that takes me back to case number four, where if it's related, there's a situation where, you know, you do kind of do a big U-shape, starting on a one rest stop, then the kill site, then back to the opposite rest stop, then run across the I-64, you know, just waiting until there's no cars coming. Um, like you said, you know, they, you don't want to get spotted running across the highway at two o'clock in the morning. But I, I think that's a, a plausible scenario. Through terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat 
and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. In Kathy's case, uh, the the two areas in question, one where the the car was found and then two being that picnic. Yes. um, Would it be possible for the individual to get back to that picnic area not using the road? Walking maybe the waterway or walking through the the woods, I guess? I I guess so. One of the things that's striking about that section of the Colonial Parkway the Colonial Parkway is this 23-mile-long ribbon of land that was purchased by the National Park Service in the 40s, I want to say. And then, you know, they built it to connect these historic sites. In some cases, the Colonial Parkway, which runs along the, the James and York Rivers um, to connect these sites, is only a couple hundred yards wide. They actually joke that it's America's narrowest national park. So... In some cases, the in, in, let's say in the walkback scenario where we've got the perpetrator killing Kathy and Becky at one of the two picnic sites, there's one in either direction, and they are significantly more isolated and away from the road, he or they could, well, let's say he, he could walk back. And then remember we talked about you've got 10 or 15 seconds minimum to duck back into the woods if someone comes along in a car. He'll hear the car um, coming, and they could duck back into the woods, crouch down, wait for that car to go by, and then continue walking along, uh, along the Colonial Parkway back to where they left their car. I think that's completely plausible. And as we've talked about, man, it is pitch black out there. So if you're driving along late at night, you, you know, home from being out with friends or whatever, you're not expecting to run into anybody along the Colonial Parkway, believe me. Um, so that if the, if the perpetrator was walking along the road and they heard you coming and they crouched down and ducked back a little bit into the underbrush, I think you'd motor on by in your car without ever realizing that there was somebody there. And then, you know, then, you, you know, you're, they watch your taillights go off. They know you're not stopping. And they, they walk again. I think that's completely, completely uh, a plausible scenario. Regarding the second case with uh, David and Robin, now that's the one where we, we can see that it, it, the troubling thing with David and Robin's case is we don't have a clear understanding of where they should have been or where they were intending to go. Right. They, they had met that night and they had gone out with, with a couple of, of, uh, uh, friends, including, um, David's brother. They had, uh, they'd been at, at a, um, an arcade. They'd been to the movies, but then it appears that when they were driving home in, 
David's pickup truck that uh, David and Robin made a a plan to meet up later. So she went home and then snuck out. And then he went home, had um, a pizza with his brother, and then told his his younger brother that he was going back out, but didn't say where he was going. Um, This, by the way, we talk about the Ragged Island Wildlife uh, Refuge or Preserve. Um, Interestingly, it it's the parking lot where the truck was found is located right next to a four plus mile long bridge called the James River Bridge. The very busy city of Newport News is on the far side of the bridge on on the side of the bridge where the car was found is called Isle of Wight County. And at that time, especially 30 years ago, that was kind of a that was kind of the boonies. And this Mm. marshy area where the wildlife preserve is is designed, you know, for for ducks and wildlife and so on. Interestingly, the bridge is right there, and there is traffic, uh, significant traffic, um, on the bridge day and night. But interestingly, when I went there with the investigator, she pointed out to me that the the direction of travel um, uh, doesn't allow for much of a view of that parking lot. You would have to crane your neck while driving a, a car or a truck crane your neck and look out the passenger side window all the way over your kind of right shoulder in order to see what was going on in this sandy parking lot next to the river. So even though at first when I went there, I I thought, well, this is busier than I thought. The far side of the bridge, which has a would, would have a better view of the parking lot is blocked by the physical structure of the bridge and the near side of the bridge it would require like just a very odd, almost complete head turn on the part of the driver to see anything going on at that parking lot. And by the way, this is sometime after midnight. So again, it's dark and there's no street lights or, or any light in that sandy parking lot next to, to the river. So, you know, that, by the way, in that scenario, there's one where let's say someone rolls up on the couple Edward Snowbling in the pickup truck and um, something transpires, uh, something terrible. And ultimately they are um, walked down to the river and shot and thrown in, or the bodies are disposed of in some way. At that point you could drive your vehicle right up to the edge of the water. As a matter of fact, a number of people use that as kind of an informal boat launch spot. So, you you know, you could drive a a vehicle up to the edge of the water. Um, and, you know, even, even David's uh, Ford Ranger could have been the vehicle that was used to drive up to the edge of the water, or they could have been marched down to directly to the edge of the water. It can't be any more than 100 to 200 yards, I've walked it, but just a short walk to the edge of the river. And despite the fact that the bridge is right there, the people on the bridge can't really see what's going on there. So something could transpire right then and there. And then the individual walks back to uh, his, or I guess I should say her uh, car and drives away, leaving David's car um oddly positioned in the parking lot it was parked nose in to the parking space and david 
and his brother swear, his brother swears to me, he never ever parked the car nose in. He was one of those truck guys who always swung around no matter where he was and parked the truck nose out. It's a truck thing. And one other interesting detail, the, the windshield wipers were still on on the vehicle uh, in the mist setting where it goes very slowly. And the, the ignition was left in the accessory position uh, with the radio on and they had hardwired the radio. So David would have known that he did not need to have the vehicle in the accessory position in order to run the radio. Um, so it's odd that it would be in that position. So the car, the truck is parked incorrectly from David's brother's perspective and the the ignition is left in, in a position that David wouldn't normally use. His brother feels very strongly, his brother Michael feels very strongly that um, that vehicle was moved by someone else, um, not David Knobley. Yeah, I think that that definitely sounds like somebody would have moved it, leaving it in that position. And definitely knowing truck guy, yeah, truck guy likes to have his, uh, you know, everything on display. And uh, you're not going to get that from the tailgate, so... Yeah, and 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 uh, truck guys I know tell me it's also about jump starting, and it's a truck thing. I'm not sure I totally get it, but you never ever park your truck nose in; it's always parked nose out. And he's not going to drain his battery either. I mean that. No, and right. they and 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 Michael Nobling has explained to me. You know, there he's a car guy himself. Um, in fixes cars and that sort of thing. And um, so while we're in this incredible garage with all his amazing tools, he's explaining to me how they hardwired the radio because, you know, they would do stuff. They would, they had this little Ford Ranger with the chrome wheels and everything. And, you know, they would go and do, uh, you know, outdoor stuff and they always wanted to have the tunes on. And so they had hardwired the radio so that you didn't have to have the, uh, um, the keys in the accessory position in order to be blasting the tunes. And, you know, when you see these inconsistencies about how, you know, vehicles are parked and, and, you know, how they're positioned, um, you start to realize, wait a minute, the driver of the, of the assigned driver of that vehicle was not the last person to operate this motor vehicle. Um, and so, you know, that's definitely a pattern and a through line that you see, in all four of the double homicides in the Colonial Parkway. Now, back to something you said earlier regarding your sister's case and that crime scene being the most evidence-rich of the four, we have a different thing with the, with the second crime scene, where at, out of all four of them, the second crime scene is the only one that presents a possible sexual component to the crime. Correct. And so in, in that situation, it, it could be either different motive or at the very least, a different angle for investigation. Correct. It's also worth pointing out. And again, I'm not attaching any value judgment to what I'm saying here. All of these places where the cars were found were places that couples were known to go. They were also places, particularly Ragged Island, that were known for low-level drug deals. So, for example, if you were going to score a pot deal, um, the that Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge next to the next to the James River Bridge, directly opposite the very busy 
cities of Hampton Roads and Newport News. And remember, now we're on the side of the James River where it's kind of the boonies and very quiet. Um, the Isle of Wight Sheriff's Department is, you know, a minimal, uh, minimally staffed um, department. It's much bigger and more professional now than it was back then. Um, it's possible, for example, in the Edwards Knobling case that they might have gone there to um, score some pot and they might have reached out to somebody to say, hey, meet me on the far side of the James River Bridge and, you know, we want to buy some pot. So, for example, one of the areas of exploration that I, I think deserves more focus from law enforcement is going back and taking a look at um, who might um, Robin and David be meeting on the far side of the bridge. And there is a sexual component. Uh, there is DNA evidence in that example that someone had sex with Robin Edwards, uh, and forgive me for being graphic, the, the likely the night she died. Um, and I'm told, but I don't know this definitively, that that individual was not was not David. So n now we have a scenario where there's you know possible sexual contact. There could be a rape, uh, or you know, or sexual assault of some kind. Um, and I'm told that the DNA sample is is um, not in the best uh, of shape. Keeping in mind that. Uh, Robin's body had been in the water for three days. But, you know, to me, there's an intriguing opportunity for further um, forensic exploration about whether or not they could get a workable DNA sample from a, a, a less than stellar um, uh, piece of evidence. But again, 2019 uh, DNA technology is significantly more advanced than it was 30 years ago. And I, I think that's something that we'd very much like to see the Virginia State Police and the Isle of Wight Sheriff's Department revisit. And is that how you see that this case is actually going to end up being resolved, is just with the advancements in technology? Because obviously we haven't had anybody confess or anything along those lines. Well, you know, I'd had a conversation with a law enforcement expert recently, just over the weekend, and he was somewhat um, uh, discouraged with, you know, the, you know, the status of the overall investigation. But one of the things he said was he thinks that the, uh, I think he used the, used the word brilliant. I, that may be a little strong. But he said that the Colonial Parkway murders families are doing something that he thinks is very smart, which is, he said, you're not letting this go. You know, we have 7,500 followers on our Colonial Parkway murders Facebook page now. Um, and I have thousands of followers on Twitter. And of course, I'm doing a podcast with you two fine gentlemen. And, and we recently had a, a big profile in the Washington Post. And we have a television series coming out uh, in spring 2020. And what he said was, uh, I think he was trying to balance out his, you know, kind of discouraging uh, view that the case is not as far moved as far forward as it should have, in his opinion with the, he said, you know, I think the one brilliant thing you guys are doing is you're not letting this go. And he said, sooner or later, somebody 
is go who knows something about one or more of these crime scenes and about these victims is going to step forward. And he said, I got to give you guys credit, meaning the families, for not letting this go and um, keeping, you know, that drumbeat out there and talking about the case, just like we're doing today. He said that has tremendous value. He said, I actually think that's what's going to break the Colonial Parkway murders. So I don't know. He's a, he's an expert and a, and a go-to guy for me for many, many years. And uh, maybe he was saying it just to make us feel better, but it, it, it did. And um, which is why we're going to stay with it. We're going to keep talking about this case until this case is solved because experts tell me the Colonial Parkway murders is a solvable case. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I mean, with Nick's show, True Crime Garage, I mean, they do hundreds of thousands and millions of downloads. So uh, definitely the story is out there and their the true crime army is <laughs> is definitely uh, uh, something that exists. So um, I think that, you know, attention like you give to this case, and I've talked to you about it before, and you being sort of uncomfortable with it, but you are sort of the leader of the pack at the moment and you do carry the torch for pretty much every family that's involved in this case and i know that you've got the upcoming tv show and documentary and then you're doing all this other publicity and along with the podcast are you becoming more comfortable with the title of sort of i guess the title of being I mean, number one cheerleader, because you said you're not going to stop until this case is solved. Uh, you know, I think you can probably sense my, my, a little bit of my discomfort. I, I feel like this is a group effort and uh, I'm just a stubborn Irishman uh, from Boston. Who's too stupid to give up. Well, um, you're, just a good you're a good spokesman. You, I mean, you really do put yourself out there and, and your candor is I think what, to me, I mean, obviously, you and I, we hit it off when we first met at CrimeCon, but just the fact that you're out there and you're putting yourself out there and you're participating in shows and, you know, producing shows and doing shows with Nick and doing shows with, you know, Crime Junkies and all those other people, it's, it's, it's so important, and just like the authority told you, that that is what is going to be what solves the case. And, and that goes for so many of these cold cases. I mean, I do the Amy Mihaljevic podcast and I keep it going because of the fact that it is a solvable case and that it will one day be solved. And I think that, you know, anybody who does any of these types of shows or, you know, participates in these shows, the whole goal is to get some solution or closure. And I hate that word. Don't hold that against me. Um, but <laughs> you know, you know what I'm talking about? It's, it's the, you, you're looking for an answer to something that you literally spent 33 years picking your brain over. And I just think that you're doing like the, you know, like your friend told you, it is definitely what will solve the case. Yeah. And by the way, th thank you. And in saying that, I'm not taking anything away from the tens of thousands of hours that have gone into investigating uh, this case. I, so I don't mean to imply that the Parkway families are going to solve this case. We very much need and support um, law enforcement. And they're the folks that have really done the work. All we've done is is try to take a, a spotlight and, and uh, True Crime Garage and 
uh, and the Who Killed, I'll, I'll call it a series now, because I know you're covering the Amy Mahalovic case and, and several other cases, including the Colonial Parkway case, and we really appreciate this. The spotlight, the media spotlight that, that, you, that you all are part of, I think is important. I can't, I'm not an investigator. I'm not a trained forensics expert. Um, but I can talk on the radio, if you know what I mean. And I can reach out to uh, law enforcement and forensics experts. You, you know, the whole genetic genealogy thing has been incredibly exciting. We're thrilled to see them solve, you know, 50 to 60 cases in the last year, year and a half. Um, since the Golden State Killer case broke and uh, the Bear Brook case in New Hampshire. Uh, this, this is an exciting time, and the science has advanced. And if it takes me talking about this case um, and encouraging the other Colonial Parkway Murders family members to uh, appear on television with me and do media interviews and do podcasts and keep talking about the case. If that's what it takes, I feel like that we can hold up the family end of things. Um, I mean, sadly, one of the things that we're seeing happen, and we just lost another parent, um, uh, Mr. Lauer, um, uh, just recently passed away. My Both my parents uh, have, have died. My dad, my dad died a couple of months ago. And so, you know, there is this a legacy thing that's happening in the Colonial Parkway murders where now it's mostly the siblings of the victims who are doing the, um, you know, keeping the case alive um, uh, work. Uh, but I, I'm comfortable with that. I, I think it's important that we hold up our end. I'm, I'm confident that given the right evidence, the FBI and the Virginia State Police would be thrilled to close out some or all of the Colonial Parkway murders. And as you said a minute ago, Bill, I'm not terribly comfortable with the word closure. I don't think there is such a thing from my individual perspective, but I think there would be some degree of satisfaction and a sense of that, you know, justice has prevailed in, in some way. Um, you know, should we move some or all of these um, uh, parts of the Colonial Parkway murders forward. And I, I think the families would take great satisfaction and pride um, in, in that regard. I don't want to get ahead of myself. It, you know, we still have a lot of work to do, but I, I'm not terribly comfortable with the, you know, <laughs> leader or, or, or what have you. I just think, uh, as my girlfriend Pamela has said, I, she thinks this case kind of came back onto my radar a decade ago at a time when I had more life experience and more professional experience in this marketing and communications career that I've had. And so maybe it got moved back onto my radar uh, personally for a reason. She's more, much more spiritual than I am about divine providence and <laughs> the universe and stuff like that than I am. Um, but you know, Pamela may be right about that. Nick, what are your thoughts on the, um, you know, your I guess your final thoughts on the case and you know where it kind of goes from here? Well, I believe that there's, as far as getting some kind of answers in any of these four cases, 
I think, again, to investigate them as standalone cases is would be the best from a strategic angle. Uh, also, there are there is testing that probably could be done in the first and second case that that needs to continue if if and when that is available and possible. Um, and then, as Bill just said, regarding if we keep this if we keep this in the spotlight, maybe eventually somebody comes forward, and that could be any number of things. If we are talking about a situation where we have more than one killer, and, and again, Bill really hit on something that, that I failed to do so, uh, but wanted to make sure that I brought up was just because, let's say we have a leader and follower and it is a group of two men, it's not necessary for both of them to be present in all four of these cases, number one. And, and, and as Bill has pointed out, time and time again, it's also not necessary that there be more than one killer. This could be one individual acting alone in all of these cases that he is in fact tied to. What we need to have happen is if it is a team, and I see why they made that ploy to the follower, to the, uh, the, the, um, the subservient member of, of the team, you do that because one likely this the, the follower is the only one out of the two that likely will feel any type of remorse. And then on top of that, the leader is so psychotic and so dangerous that the follower is probably afraid of the leader as well. So you can use fear and you can use remorse as a tactic to get that individual to come forward. The only way for that individual to maybe feel somewhat better about any of these situations or to relieve any guilt or, or anything that he has on his conscience and his soul is, would be to come forward and tell the truth and to bring some closure and, and some form of justice to these families. There's still time for that follower to save his soul or, or, or somehow do some good out of this whole terrible mess. Now, if we're talking about one individual, what we need to have happen is there, there is probably somebody out there that has some knowledge of, of what took place, but may not know that, that they know something of importance. And what I'm getting at with that is, especially in the first case, where we have whoever committed the murders of Kathy and Becky, when, when they came home, if they came home to a, a wife, a girlfriend, a mother, a father, a, you know, if they lived with anybody, this person looked like something happened that night. Looked like something happened that night. This per person would have looked like they were in a fight. They would have probably smelled like diesel fuel. They would have been dirty. They would have been coming home at a strange hour. They would have been on edge for days after the murders. They would have been on edge for days after the vehicle was found a few days later. Um, this person very likely would have had scratches or, or possibly even cuts on their fingers or hands, um, maybe even missing a patch of hair. You know, we're talking about maybe a, a blood spot on their, on their scalp. Uh, these are things that would stand out to to whoever they lived with. Now, maybe that night that individual says, hey, hey, I was in a bar fight, and, and maybe you believed it, maybe you fell for it, but um, somebody out there somewhere knows something, whether they know how important it is, the information that they have. There are ways for this, the, this case 
any four of these cases to be solved. And, and even I know that we're, we're so many years later, but I still feel very confident, especially in the, uh, the, the first two cases that, that we could, we could really see something here. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And by the way, if people are looking to, to get a hold of us, um, uh, I've told Bill Huffman this before, in all these years, <laughs> I've never changed my email address since the first one I had. I've never changed my cell phone number since the first cell phone I bought. I uh, just got an upgrade the other day after some technical problems. Thank you, Apple. And uh, um, so if people want to get a hold of us, all they have to do is go to Colonial Parkway Murders on Facebook, and they can contact us through the Facebook page. We do not make ourselves hard to find. We do try to get back to everybody. I know there's a tipster that I owe a phone call to right now who approached us um, uh, a few days ago, and we've had some email exchanges, and now I'm ready to transition over to a phone call. We, I, I know this makes law enforcement very unhappy, but given our history with this case, we actually would prefer that people speak to us, the families first, so that we can ensure that the tip reaches the right people in law enforcement. And then quite frankly, we can follow up with them to make certain that they are at least aware of what's going on. We've had, we've heard so many times people over the years have been unhappy when they tried to reach law enforcement. They didn't quite know how to go about doing it. And of course we um, can get a hold of the investigators, and uh, thankfully the FBI has unfrozen our relationship and is now returning our calls after a year and a half uh, a frozen period where they refuse to speak to us. Um, so the FBI and the Virginia State Police investigators will speak with us. We will forward on the information and the contact information because obviously we're not investigators. We just want to make certain that if someone does know something, whether it's back to Nick's point, if you know, if you think back to October 9th, 1986, and that fall your partner, uh, relative, etc., was behaving strangely, or or what have you, that um, that these tips are are followed up upon. Um, we do think this is a solvable case. Experts have told us this is a solvable case, and. We would really appreciate it if people would, you know, Google the Colonial Parkway murders, read a little bit about the case, listen to podcasts like this one. Um, and if there's something that strikes a chord with them, uh, no time like the present, um, you know, reach out to us. We'll put you in touch with law enforcement um, and, and make certain that your tip is followed up upon by the appropriate agency and at least you'll be able to know that you you know your bit of information which could end up being incredibly valuable and remember law enforcement knows so many more things about this case than we do something may strike a chord with them the the lead investigators that would be incredibly beneficial to to all of us to moving this case forward yeah i think that that definitely would be the uh you know, the solution to any of these cases is basically somebody coming forward. And like Nick said, I mean, somebody knows. I mean, nobody goes around and can kill somebody without getting blood on themselves, especially in your sister's case where it would have just been very noticeable. So 
you know, if people can recall their old memories and um, anything that they can think of, it's like the unknowing witness. Um, they just didn't realize it at the time that they were witness to something that turned out to be connected to a murder or a string of murders. So I just, I just, well, well, just <clears throat> go just ahead, Nick. Ex- sorry, just to expand upon that just a little bit, but in October 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th of 1986, that whoever saw something would be suspicious, would be very suspicious. And it it wouldn't be easily explained away by I was in a bar fight or anything like that. This is um, a a very messy incident, a very messy situation. The person all these years later may have fallen for whatever story they were told that night or the next day. But they've always had some suspicion since then. So if, if, if you are that person and you are listening, reach out to Bill. He's the older brother of the victim that we're talking about in this situation. Reach out to Bill and tell him what you know. Even if it's just suspicion, tell him what you know. And there's also the email on the, in the show notes of this episode for you know, any tips to the FBI, as well as the uh, FBI tip line. Again, like you said, if you know something, if you knew anything, saw anything weird, it's 33 years later. It's kind of time to get it off your soul, like you said. I mean, it's a soul-crushing thing to carry around a burden like that. I hope that that, that's what happens. And, I mean, I can't thank you guys enough for joining me for uh, another uh, very interesting conversation. I mean, I end up catching myself listening to you guys more than I end up talking because you guys are so knowledgeable about the case and you guys are just very open. I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the time so much. Well, we appreciate the platform, Bill. It's been a, really a fascinating conversation um, and uh, uh, barking dogs notwithstanding. Yeah. And you know, when we had talked last week, Bill, about p- potentially doing this with Nick and I'm, I'm really glad that we were able to, to make it happen and nick was as i told you nick was (laughs) real quick to jump on it so uh i think this was a really cool uh opportunity for you to get another platform and keep that case you know this case in the spotlight nick how long ago was it that that you guys covered the case on true crime garage it's been a while it's probably been 18 or 19 months because i want to say that we you and i spoke after you know maybe a month after we covered it and then uh we we had the uh privilege of i had the privilege of meeting you in person at crime con and so when bill huffman asked me to said hey you want to join me and bill thomas for a conversation just to have the opportunity one to talk to you again and for the first time have the opportunity to talk to my two favorite bills all in the same conversation. (laughs) There was no way I was missing this. (laughs) Thank you again so much to Bill Thomas and Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast for participating in this five-part series. I cannot implore you enough to listen to True Crime Garage's coverage of the case. It really is a great two-part series. I believe you can find the episode using the Stitcher app, so if you haven't downloaded that app, uh, you can find it in the App Store. And if you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, please do. I have a bunch of new shows coming in 2020, 
as well as a new show I'll be dropping in November. As a reminder, this is an independently produced podcast. So if you'd like to help keep the lights on and the recorders running, you can support the show by clicking the donate button on the right-hand side of whokilledamymahalovic.com or via the Venmo app with my username at BillHuffman3. Any amount is appreciated. If you want to stay up to date on the cases that I follow or that I cover, you can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. The email addresses I mentioned during the show can be found in the show notes along with the sources I used for this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It will help support the show, and it does help keep cases like the Colonial Parkway murders in the spotlight. So anyone with information about Holly's murder is asked to call the Hampton County State Police Detective Unit at 413-505-5993. If you have any information regarding the case of 16-year-old Molly Ann Bish, you can also contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI or at the Massachusetts State Police at one 800 808-9677. And don't forget, October 27th marks 30 years that Amy Mahalovic's case has remained unsolved. I have a few special episodes planned for the month of October, so if you have any new information, please contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234. The FBI is offering a reward of up to $25,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for the death of Amy Renee Mahalovic. So again, anyone with information concerning these cases, please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Stay tuned for an all-new case next Friday. Thank you so much again for listening, and in the meantime... Be safe. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. 
that's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.